Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, people from the Bahamas return to their ancestral home of Angola near Sarasota, Florida. Free black people living there were forced to flee when American slavery came to Florida in the early 1800s. Once we know where we came from, we know where we're going, and the next generation would never know that this history ever exists. We'll discuss the real first Thanksgiving, which took place in Florida 55 years before the Pilgrims landed. There are actually only two written narratives of the account that survive today. It's believed that Menendez might have a written narrative that survived for at least a few decades, but it, it's lost now. We don't know where it is. And we'll talk about the work of the Veterans Legacy Program at St. Augustine National Cemetery. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. People from Andros Island in the Bahamas gather annually in their ancestral home of Angola near Sarasota, Florida. They are descendants of people who fled Florida two centuries ago when their freedom was threatened by the United States. When Daphne Towns discovered this connection between her birthplace and her current home, she was inspired to create the Back to Angola Festival. We were walking on the Manatee Mineral Springs Park and my husband came across a marker that said, the Bahamas and the Seminole Indians leaving to go to the Bahamas. I said, the Bahamas, that's my hometown. And as I continue to read, it said, Andrus Island in the Bahamas. I'm like, whoa, 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 this is too close to home. That's where my mother is from. So I began to start to research and I called home and they were like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I spoke with Trudy Williams with the Reflections of Manatee and she began to tell me, oh yes, this park was put here and this once where the Seminole Indians reside for a point of time before they went to Red Bay Andros. And I invited two of my friends who were visiting at this time for another festival and I told them you must see this place. And we came and we walked the grounds and we prayed and, and the three of us said at the same time, we need to do a festival. Because the Bahamas is all about festival and bringing history alive. Uzi Baram is professor of anthropology and director of the New College Public Archaeology Lab. In 2004, Baram joined a team of researchers that found the lost free black settlement of Angola. People started coming to what uh, we refer to today as Angola, uh, which is on the south side of the Manatee River, uh, probably in the 1770s, that Florida had been historically a haven for people escaping from slavery most famously up by St. Augustine, uh, Fort Musée, which was established in the very late 17th century. By the 1770s, uh, 
people are coming from Havana, Cuba to set up ranchos, fishing, hamlets. And that seems to attract some of the escaped slaves as well as free blacks who are living in Spanish La Florida. Some of the activities uh, in the Gulf Coast started pushing people to come here. The most important was what was occurring on the Apalachicola in a place called Prospect Bluff. In the early 1800s, Florida was still owned by Spain, but England built a fort at Prospect Bluff in the Florida Panhandle. The American government called it the Negro Fort. During the War of 1812, while Florida was part of the Spanish Empire, British soldiers helped establish a fort on the Apalachicola River. That fort ended up attracting hundreds of Native Americans and people referred to as Maroons, both free blacks and escaped slaves, self-emancipated people. And that became a real center with hundreds. The U.S. was concerned about it. They saw it as a threat to the slave regime. And the U.S. Navy went up the Apalachicola River in July of 1816. And what the U.S. military records describe as a lucky shot, blew up the fort, killing about 300 people, leading to the capture of a couple hundred more, and others escaped. And they escaped down to Suwannee, where the Seminoles have had a village under Billy Bowlegs, one of the great leaders of the Seminole people. Uh, they lived close to the Seminole village, strewn out in hamlets. We know that from U.S. military records. Encouraged by the single cannonball shot that landed in the Negro Fort Powder magazine, destroying the structure and decimating the population, future U.S. President Andrew Jackson continued raiding Spanish-controlled Florida. Uzi Baram. Andrew Jackson, knowing that people had escaped from Prospect Bluff, people who identified as British soldiers, people who had been trained in the military, sent, went with the Tennessee volunteers down to Suwannee. The 1818 Battle of Suwannee is again recorded by the U.S. military. The people referred to as black warriors held off the U.S. troops. They ultimately fell back and the village was destroyed. But where they went back to was the Manatee River, Tampa Bay, Angola. So where, from the 1770s, there had been a few people there. They expanded with the battle at the Apalachicola River, and then expanded even more. By 1818, about 750 free black people were living in Angola. Long before the War of 1812, people escaping slavery in colonies to the north joined Native Americans living in Florida. Eventually, these formerly enslaved people became known as Black Seminoles. The relationship between people referred to as uh, Seminoles and the people referred to as Free Blacks, Maroons, Black Seminoles, uh, people who self-emancipated themselves from slavery, well, those identities were quite fluid at the time. Uh, the sense of these are rigid identities is something that we have today. By the time people were escaping, from colonialism, from enslavement, and they were in a giant territory, which is quite underpopulated, right, the Florida Peninsula. The ancestors for the Seminoles were the allies, supporters of the people who escaped from slavery, the people of African heritage. Uh, and the initial uh, assumptions was that Angola represented both Seminole and Maroons. It seems the Battle of 1818 led to a split, where that the people of Angola were mostly people of African descent, 
where the Seminoles were more in the interior of the peninsula. It's not rigid. People intermarried, they interacted, they stayed places with each other. And by the time we have much more information, which is during the Second Seminole War that starts in 1835, the identities are Seminole and Black Seminole, very much showing that connection between these two groups of people, both of whom have a common goal of being able to live in liberty in terms of their own traditions and ways of life. As Spain transfers control of Florida to the United States, Andrew Jackson requests permission from the U.S. government to retrieve stolen property from Florida, namely escaped slaves and their descendants. When Jackson is denied permission, he enlists help from like-minded Native Americans in Georgia who lead a raid into Florida on Jackson's behalf. Uzi Baram. This slave raid goes in surprises the people in Tampa Bay and Charlotte Harbor, spreads terror across the Gulf Coast, which is a term from the newspaper story, captures a couple of hundred people, but also notes that some escaped. And so what we know is, and we have the list of names of those who were captured. And so I can talk about Nancy, and I can talk about her three children, because that's listed. Uh, they were brought up to Georgia because they were seen as property. And there were lawsuits about these people, because in fact, most of them were in fact never enslaved. They had been born in freedom in Florida. And so there's some information on them. Others escaped into the interior, but as I've mentioned, as the history shows, they saw themselves as British subjects and they escaped through the Everglades with the help of Cuban fishermen and others to Andros Island in what was then the British Bahamas and set up communities where it'd be difficult to reach them quite purposeful. The west coast of Andros, has, uh, it's very difficult for large ships to get to. And so these people who were petrified of U.S. Navy ships found a place where they could live in freedom and have so since the day. Archaeological excavations conducted by Uzi Baram identified the site of Angola by the Manatee River in Bradenton, Florida, near Sarasota. Daphne Towns organizes the annual Back to Angola Festival to make sure this important history is never forgotten. I think everyone needs to know the history that once lived in this community and be aware of it, because I feel like once we know where we came from, we know where we're going, and the next generation would never know that this history ever exists. I have friends that I have friend befriended living here, right here in Bradenton, Florida, lived in the next street and did not know this park exists, or even this history. I talked with professors, school teachers, who are now retired, and I said, you must come to the festival. It's the Bactan Gola Festival, and you know, the Seminole Indians and the free slave once lived right here. And they were like, where, in Bradenton? I was born and lived down the street. Are you kidding? And so they come back every year. It's like, oh my God, we never knew this. And if it was not for the festival, this history would just sit on a park. And so that's my desire, is to bring all of that history that's just sitting on that park alive. Sharona Woodside Barr is an Angola descendant living in Red Bay's Andros Island. She brings her traditional basket weaving to the Back to Angola Festival and helped Daphne Towns identify other participants. She came to North Andros, she picked her up at the airport and we drove into Red Bay's where she met my father and some other local Androsians. She, um, also got a chance to view the sponging and 
the basket weaving, the wood carving, and, and all of that. And so she invited myself along with Miss Indiana Colebrook, the chef extraordinaire who cooks Bahamian del um, delightful delicious dishes, and Mr. Henry Wallace, re world-renowned Henry Wallace, the wood carver, and Mr. Wilson Russell, she invited us back, Miss Peggy Colebrook, last year. And unfortunately, only three of us made made the journey last year here. It was awesome. We really had a lot of fun. We learned a lot that we did not know happened here at Manatee County that linked us with Red Bays here. Wilton Russell is an Angola descendant living in Red Bays who brings his music and his wood carving skills to the Back to Angola Festival. When I first started wood carving, I started building boats, um, models, you know, that you put up on the shelves and stuff like that. My dad was a real boat builder, so it hung down, like people say, chip don't fall far from the block. Sometimes you have a son and your son end up doing just the things that you used to do. So this is, some of this has got to do with heritage. Uzi Baram. The story of Angola, the history that's there, the saga, uh, is both important just historically, right? There's a part of me that is, of course, uh, an academic, a professor, and just knowing what happened in history, just laying out where people ended up. Uh, for the people of Andros Island, it's being able to connect them to the ancestors. When Looking for Angola began in 2004, the elders knew that the ancestors had come from Florida, but that was about it. People did not share with their children and grandchildren the details of the terror that they had faced. And so there's just a vague sense of this large peninsula was an ancestral stopping point. So we were able to connect in much more concrete ways people on Andros, where the ancestors come from and some of the trials and tribulations and achievements that they underwent so those people could live in liberty and on Andros. It's also important just so we have a sense of the trajectory and the ebbies that occurred here. I've been living in Sarasota since I took the job at New College has been uh, almost a quarter of a century. And I think knowing about the history that's beneath our feet helps connect people to a place. But probably most importantly is just to realize how people back in the early 1800s faced such tremendous challenges. To leave the plantations of Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, and go into the unknown, to go through the hammocks and swamps of Florida, just believing that there is a place where you can find freedom and liberty. I think it's just so empowering. Uzi Baram is professor of anthropology and director of the New College Public Archaeology Lab. We also spoke with Daphne Towns, organizer of the Back to Angola Festival, and Angola descendants Sharona Woodside Barr and Wilton Russell.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. The Florida Historical Society Press publishes a variety of books about our state's diverse history and culture. You can get your Christmas shopping done early at fhspress.org. A membership in the Florida Historical Society also makes a great gift. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. We've come to the time in the season where family and friends gather near to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for blessings we've known through the years. Join hands and thank the Creator Now when Thanksgiving is due This year when I count my blessings Thanking the Lord He made you Fifty-five years before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, Spanish colonists in St. Augustine shared a feast of Thanksgiving with Native Americans in Florida. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have some rare books here that indicate that the real first Thanksgiving took place right here in Florida. Yeah, and it's a, a really an interesting uh, point in, in the history of the Spanish presence in Florida. And most people who are interested in Florida history and, and scholars are familiar with the 1565 Spanish expedition of uh, Pedro Menendez de Aviles when he established uh, St. Augustine. But what's sort of a, an interesting side note is that as part of that expedition, when they first met with the native people um, and established the town, they held a small mass, a small service on the site that is now St. Anastasia Island. So it's actually on the barrier island of where modern St. Augustine is now. But they also dined with the Indians and had what we would consider sort of the first Thanksgiving, if you will, sort of the first meeting and actual sitting down at the table and, and breaking bread, if you will, with the native peoples of, of Northeast Florida. One of the sources we have for this real first Thanksgiving story is from revered Florida historian Michael Gannon, who passed away in 2017. Yeah, that's right. And, and Dr. Gannon, for decades, really been the, the preeminent scholar uh, on not only Catholic presence in, in Florida, but also the early colonial presence. And uh, he published a book in the 1960s entitled uh, Cross in the Sand, which is still, it's actually still in print today. And it's one of the best sources for the uh, the history of the Catholic and Spanish presence in Florida. But he uh, actually went through a lot of the original, um, original accounts and pieced together what this first Thanksgiving dinner would have actually looked like. And he used a couple of sources that we know of there are actually only two written narratives of the of the account that that survive today it's it's believed that uh, menendez might have uh, a written narrative that that uh, survived for at least a few decades but it, it's lost now we don't know where it is but one of those accounts was from the uh, priest who was on the expedition Father Francisco uh, Lopez, who there's actually a statue of him up in, in St. Augustine now. Um, the other gentleman was a, a doctor, Dr. Gonzalo Solis de Meras, and he was actually Pedro Menendez's brother-in-law, and he was the official recorder of the, of the expedition. And it's interesting because both men picked up different aspects of the, of the meeting. For instance, Father Francisco Lopez obviously officiated the, the ceremony, and he talks about the Indians mimicking the, the Spanish, you know, when they were bowing down in front of the cross. And according to his account, it seemed like the Indians were, were intrigued and interested, but don't, weren't really sure what was going on. Uh, but in the Solas de Meras account, he actually talks about uh, Menendez uh, feeding and dining with the Indians. And then uh, after the mass was said, they dined. And then Menendez sort of went on his way, and, and they went about continuing to build the fort at St. Augustine. 
Now, just as an interesting uh, sidebar, uh, the one of the copies of The Cross on the Sand by Michael Gannon that you have in the uh, Florida Historical Society archived is actually uh, originally inscribed to uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Yeah, that's right. And that's another kind of interesting aspect of, of one of our items in our collection. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, looks like it was given to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas sometime in the late 1970s, 1978. Although the book we have is a second edition, so it was printed in 1967. Marjorie Douglas must have uh, ran into him at some point and happened to have the book. And, and he wrote a little inscription here that said, uh, with the admiration and kindest wishes of Michael V. Gannon. And it's dated here November 16, 1978. Now, as you mentioned, Michael Gannon uh, quotes Father Francisco Lopez, the priest who gave the first Mass in St. Augustine just before this Thanksgiving feast in 1565 and, and other contemporary sources as well. Gannon was using uh, the primary source material, as you said, but you also have some of that in the archive. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I had mentioned the uh, Solas de Meras account, and it was originally published in Spain and in the Spanish language shortly after the expedition, 1567, and it was lost for centuries. And it actually wasn't fully published until 1893, but it was still published in Spanish. But in the 1920s, a uh, historian, a Florida historian by the name of uh, Jeanette Thurber Connor, who was a member of the Florida State Historical Society, another contemporary organization with the Florida Historical Society, translated the entire account. That translation is what Dr. Gannon used as a primary source. And it is, to this date, far as I know, it's the only English translation of that eyewitness account. Now, historian Michael Gannon has said that the real first Thanksgiving in Florida consisted of a stew of salted pork and garbanzo beans with ship's bread and, and red wine. I think I'm going to stick with uh, the Pilgrim's menu this year. Yeah, I'll have to agree with you there. I think the canned cranberries uh, sound a little bit better <laughs> than uh, the peas and, and hard bread. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. I'll kiss you goodbye and I'll go on my way Grateful for all of the years Thank you for all that you gave me For teaching me what love can do Thanksgiving Day for the rest of my life Thanking the Lord He made you Thanksgiving Day for the rest of my life Thanking the Lord who made you This is Florida Frontiers. November is Veterans History Month, Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. She has this report on the work of the Veterans Legacy Program at St. Augustine National Cemetery. The History Department at the University of Central Florida recently partnered with the Department of Veterans Affairs to bring veteran stories to life through the Veterans Legacy Program. Dr. Scott French is the Director of Public History at the University of Central Florida. He told me more about the Veterans Legacy Program. The Veterans Legacy Program is an initiative of the National Cemetery Administration to connect communities to the cemeteries, the national cemeteries that were created for veterans. And they've asked us here at UCF in the History Department to help them and to bring this project into classrooms, into K-12 classrooms, into our own classrooms here at UCF. And we've been exploring how to use new technology and how to improve our storytelling techniques. 
UCF's Veterans Legacy Program team first worked at Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell, Florida, one of 135 national cemeteries overseen by the National Cemetery Administration. They took students on a field trip to Florida National Cemetery, created an interactive website that features veteran biographies written by UCF students, and they created K-12 classroom materials about the veterans there. Now they're uncovering the stories of veterans in St. Augustine National Cemetery. Dr. Scott French. St. Augustine is a really cool historical site. It has this amazing long history that predates the creation of the National Cemetery system. It became a cemetery in the early 19th century, and some of the earliest burials there date to the Seminole War. Our work there has involved researching the people who are buried there and uh, telling their stories, the hidden histories that are buried in the cemetery. Students at the University of Central Florida wrote biographies about veterans in St. Augustine National Cemetery. Gramon McPherson, a graduate student in the history program at UCF, wrote several of the veteran biographies for the Veterans Legacy Program. He told me about the importance of remembering the sacrifices of African-American veterans. There are about 55 black veterans that we focus on. The whole concept was about African-American veterans, the forgotten veterans. African-Americans, uh, their service obviously oftentimes was dismissed. African-Americans had a lot to prove even after the war. A lot of their service was still not really regarded by a broad society. And so this is our way in a sense of trying to honor their memories. My father, my grandfather, I served in the military. I have uncles who are currently serving in the military. So it's an honor for me to be able to honor that legacy, both as an African-American and as a son of a veteran. So uh, I'm just happy that I was able to be part of this again. Dr. Scott French. One of our partners on this project, the Center for Humanities and Digital Research, and Amy Giroux, who is a computer specialist, has been looking at records of African-American burials in St. Augustine National Cemetery, and what she was able to find were a considerable and substantial presence of African-Americans. And that's important to us because we want to highlight the participation of African-Americans in U.S. wars and conflicts, their, their uh, important contributions, and bring them into the stories that we tell. The work of the Veterans Legacy Program shows that every veteran has a story, and every stone in St. Augustine National Cemetery represents a life and a sacrifice that should be remembered. To read the biographies of veterans from Florida National Cemetery and St. Augustine National Cemetery, visit www.vlp.cah.ucf.edu. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker, Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. From all of us at the Florida Historical Society, have a great week and a very happy Thanksgiving. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.